50 years of his life serving the Lord and, and doing wonderful things. And, and you know when you know, the Bible says precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And Dale just got to go home, you know. And so we rejoice together with Dale and, and, and looking forward to the future hope that we all have one day, of course, but certainly praying for the family. Um, Dale, if you have been with us, know Dale had been with us in our last annual missions conference, our REACH missions conference last October, and hopefully some of you took some time to get to know Dale and Paula while they were here. And while I say that, let me say that we're, we're once again going to have the REACH missions conference at the beginning of October, October 2nd through the 5th, and we'll have another group of missionaries that will be here with us. And I just say that to say, man, take some time to get to know these saints, to get to know these missionaries when they're here among us. In fact, next Sunday, we're going to have one of our missionaries, Brian Clark, who serves in London, here with us. Um, and, you know, while Brian's here, if you get the chance, man, get to know him a little better because it's just a blessing to get to know personally. Look, these guys are just people serving the Lord, and uh, they just happen to have a foreign address. And so it's a, it's a blessing to be able to do it. But pray for the Sigafoos family. I know that they would appreciate that, um, that you would continue to pray for them. Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's open them to 2 Samuel chapter number 24. 2 Samuel 24. Uh, I'll help you with that. 2 Samuel comes right after 1 Samuel. So, <laughs> help you get that there. Um, we are wrapping up the summer series called Summer Revival Series. And I think that the whole idea of revival in the, in the Lord is not really hard to understand, at least in theory. Uh, but what we've tried to do is try and really give it handles and so that we can understand it in real daily practice. What does it really look like? And so after some of our guest speakers this summer, we've talked about some of the anticipated results that would come from a revived life. And we talked about missions, and we've talked about discipleship. And last week we talked about just having the right heart attitude. And so this week, which will be our last week, in this series, we will see a picture painted, and that's the title, A Picture of Revival. It is going to be a picture in the life of the Old Testament character, the king of Israel, King David, and again in 2 Samuel chapter number 24. Now we, if we spend any time at all in the Bible, we all know who David is. David is one of the key characters in all of the Old Testament story. In fact, he was a great king. He's the king referred to more than any other king. Uh, it's David that we refer to when we say he's the one who was called the man after God's own heart. But David still is a man. And just like any of us, um, you know, he puts his pants on one leg at a time or his skirt or whatever they were. And he had good days and he had bad days, right? And the cool thing about the Bible is, or the scary thing about the Bible is, is that God records all of it. He records all of it. Not just the great things that David did in faith, but some of the times that he didn't do so great. And so this is a story of a tough time in David's life. But by the time we get to the end of the story, he will have revived and uh, responded very well. And so what we're going to see are some, some steps. This is actually later in David's life. And this is near the end of his life. So uh, allow me just to encourage all of us that you're never too old for revival. Amen. I mean, if you see the need and if you feel God tugging on your heart, it's time for you to do whatever God would have you to do. And so the steps that we're going to see in David's life are some steps certainly that we can experience as well. I have prayed this week that this would be an encouragement and a blessing, but that it would really touch your hearts. And so let's just ask the Lord to do that, and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you in this passage of Holy Scripture, and we ask that you would do now what only you can possibly do. I, I pray for the brothers and sisters, for everybody that's come here today. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us would just kind of calm our heart and look into your word, that we would each be able to say with sincerity, Lord Jesus, come and speak to me. Show me what you need me to do. Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to live a revival life. I want to live a life that, that is exciting and vibrant. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anything in me that is hindering that, that you would point that out and that you would show me through this picture today. Lord, we love you. And we desperately want to walk with you. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. 
Well, the first thing we're going to see is rebellion. And of course it's going to start with rebellion because we're looking at the life of a person who is a believer. And we talk about revival. We're talking about somebody who has already experienced the life of God in their life at some point. But something happened. Some sort of rebellion. Some sort of sin. Something has happened to bring down the vibrancy. Something has happened to let the fire grow cold. And so if you find yourself thinking that you're okay with the Lord, you find yourself feeling like, you know, life with God is good and you've experienced a lot of blessings. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful thing. And if you've been there or are currently there, man, for sure rejoice in that. I'm not trying to bring you down unnecessarily, but David's life certainly pictures throughout his history a life of many victories, a life of many blessings, a life of responding very well to the Lord in many, many instances. And so at this point in his life, building up to this, David was actually doing okay. The previous chapter, chapter 23, is the list of all of these soldiers in David's army called David's mighty men and all the different ways that they trusted the Lord under David's leadership. And so in our lives, for example, if we try and make a parallel and say things are going good for now and we've experienced some victories in our past, I would just warn all of us to brace for impact. Because something's going to happen. Some challenges are going to come. Your flesh is going to creep up. There are going to be influences and times and challenges in your life that are going to want to draw you away from a faithful walk in the Lord. And, and David, sadly, falls into some of this kind of temptation. Things in our lives can change very quickly. And I think we understand that. Like I said earlier, David is near the end of his life and he's pretty content with the way things are going and in fact at this point in his life it's fair to say that he was proud he says typically all the right things but at this point he's actually kind of trusting in his own ability he has an attitude that we might refer to as I got this I got this and people today kind of have that attitude look things are rolling good when things are really tough I'm going to call on the Lord but you know kind of the small problems in my life I got this, Lord. I can handle this. I can take care of this myself. And that is a very dangerous place to be. That is a place that probably we've all found ourselves at some point in our lives. It, it's, a, it's a place where you feel competent. It's a place, place where you feel important enough or strong enough that you can handle it yourself. And that's a very, very dangerous place to be. In Proverbs 16, 18, it says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In here in 2 Samuel 24, I want to read for you the first four verses, and it starts out with, and again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So the Lord is having some response. It says, and he moved David against them to say, go, number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be, an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And so what David did was that he sent the captain of his army, Joab, out to number all the people, by the way, contrary to the direct revelation of Scripture. Because if you would have take, taken the time, if you would take the time, and if you want to jot down Exodus chapter 30, you can go to Exodus chapter 30 and you can find God's prescription very clearly detailed on how and when the leader of Israel is to number the people. And the specific application of Exodus chapter 30 and numbering the people is, is to remind the people of their sinfulness. It's to remind the people of their need for atonement. And literally, it was a taxation situation where the king would require a small amount to be given from every single person in the nation of Israel. It mattered not if you were wealthy or if you were poor. Everyone had to give the exact same amount. And it is a picture and a type 
of salvation, that we understand our need for salvation and the, and the price of it is the same for each and every person. And so what David finds himself doing is he takes this I got this attitude and he's going to take his pride and he's going to go and do something that is contrary to the direct revelation of Scripture. So that then, therefore, becomes an act of sin. And Joab recognized that it was an act of sin. In verse number three, Joab blesses the king and he says, O king, let there be a hundred times more than you could even want or desire in Israel, but why, king, would you command me to do something that you know is wrong? Why would you do that? He warned him. He tried to stop him. But David's word prevailed. David wanted to be reminded of just how great he was. It says in verse number two, that I may know the number. I just want to know. He wanted, he wanted to count up his greatness near the end of his life. Now, if you wanted to take a look and see, for example, if you look down and, and the count goes through, and we're not going to read all the verses through verse nine, but they went ahead and counted all the people. And if you just glance down at verse nine, it says, and Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto the king, and there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Well, we're going to look time and again at a parallel, the very parallel passage to this passage is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and if you were to take the time to compare this verse number 9 with 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse number 5, what you're going to find is the numbers don't match up. And the numbers don't match up, which causes Bible critics to say, aha, there's a contradiction in the Scripture. No, it's an apparent contradiction that can be solved with a careful reading of your King James Bible. And I'll just leave that to you for homework, but let me give you a hint if you're interested. The way that you're going to find it is by paying attention to the adjectives. Okay, so that's just something free. You can look at that. Whenever the Bible appears to have a contradiction, and typically those appear in the counting and the numbers of the people or the horses or the chariots or this or that, if you will study carefully the words that God gives to you, usually he has a lesson to be learned through that. What's really, what really matters to us is the personal application. And the personal application I put in your notes, and it's this, everybody's counting something. Have you ever noticed that? everybody's counting something. And what you're going to find typically is when that happens, it's just a demonstration of pride. It's a demonstration of pride. So here David is the king. He's the captain of the armies. He's the king of the land. He's, he's, he's the ruling sovereign one. He wants to know how many soldiers does he have in his armies. He wants to measure the power of his kingdom. And that's a prideful move. That's a sinful move. We're in a political election season, and what are the politicians doing? They're, they're polling, and they're counting votes. They want to know how great they are. They want to know how great the constituency of people that is on their side instead of on the other guy's side. We have pastors that are constantly about counting, as we would say, nickels and noses. And, and they brag about it, and they want to boast about how many people come. And if you go to preacher's meetings, and I don't, by the way, because it gets kind of irritating sometimes, they want to know how many people you got running in your church, or how much money is your church taking in, or all these kinds of things. And it just leads to pride, and pride goes before destruction. People all over count the things that they have. They count their money. They count their retirement. They count whatever they're counting. They count their stuff. You just may be in a dispute with somebody and you want to count how many people are on your side versus how many people are on somebody else's side. But here's the key in each of those cases, all while ignoring the clear revelation of the Word of God. All while ignoring the clear revelation of the Word of God. Listen, life would be a whole lot easier, wouldn't it, if we just did what God said? I mean, wouldn't it just be easier if we just took the Bible, which many of us understand fairly well, and if we just actually did what the Bible said, wouldn't, wouldn't life be a lot easier? Instead of worrying about all the things we are trying to count, well, this issue of visible success is a danger because it lulls people into this false sense of security. It, it tends to put you to sleep spiritually. And so... We have the example of the church of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17. We looked at it last week. It says, because thou sayest, this is Jesus speaking to this carnal church, 
Because you say, I am rich and increased with goods. Somebody's counting something, right? And have need of nothing. Well, that's a dangerous place to be. Because he says, you don't even know that you're wretched, miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, spiritually. They're counting all their stuff, and they're missing out on the really important things. So this thing is sin for David, and the reaction that we need to be careful of is the reaction that is so common these days. In fact, it's common throughout the history of mankind, and it's in your notes. Whose fault is it? Whose fault is it that David had this sin? I mean, everybody wants to pass the buck, don't they? I mean, nobody ever wants to accept the fault for anything. Uh, It's interesting, just last night, I was watching television, and I saw a commercial and there was a, a famous baseball player who's now retired. And he's on this commercial, and he's up in his 40s, and he's fat. And, and he's saying, you know, when I was young, I used to be able to stay in shape real easy. But now it's really hard to stay in shape. But you know what I realized? It's not my fault. It's just because when a man hits his 40s, you know, he gets a drop in testosterone, and they're selling some testosterone thing. But here's the, here's the key. It's not my fault. I'm just old, and when you're old, you lose the T, and when you lose the T, you're going to get fat, and it's not my fault. Well, whose fault is it? Is it God's fault? Well, you could say that about David. Look back at verse number one. You probably notice that it says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he, the Lord, moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. Is it God's fault that David sinned? Well, if you took the time and you looked at 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse number 1, we have the exact same parallel passage, and you will find in 1 Chronicles 21 that it says, Satan moved David to number the people. And you think, how is that possible? How is that possible? Well, that's another Bible study for another day, but can I just tell you that you better be careful before you start assigning blame. By the way, if you look down to verse number 10, for example, in our passage, David was very willing to accept, ultimately, the blame on himself. David's heart smote him after they had numbered the people, and David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly. So is it the Lord? Is it Satan? Or is it David? I mean, aren't we quick to want to pass the buck off on somebody else? Isn't that what Adam and Eve both did when they were found with their sin? Didn't Adam say, the woman that you gave me? And then the Lord goes to the woman. She says, the serpent, he gave me and deceived me. Everybody's passing the buck. Nobody's willing just to own what they did. You better be careful with that. Because I promise you, it's not always that easy. Do you remember the story of Job? Do you remember the beginning of the story of Job? And Satan comes up before the Lord, and the Lord says, he's bragging, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's no man like him on the face of the earth, one that fears God, avoids evil. And the devil's like, hey, give me a shot at him. I'll get him to curse you to your face. And the Lord says, okay, but don't touch his body. And then all the terrible things to his family and his property, and then comes back, and the Lord says, see, I told you. And the devil says, yeah, but you didn't let me touch his body. And the Lord's like, okay, touch his body. Oh, but don't kill him. And so then he gets the gross boils and all the stuff that happens to him physically. At the end of the day, when you're going through that, who really carried out all that stuff in Job's life? Was it the devil? Was it the Lord? I mean, who's at fault for that? I mean, I heard a preacher say many years ago, and I've never forgotten it, and it's kind of counterintuitive. The closer you get to the Lord, the closer you get to the devil. Now, you would think the closer you get to the Lord, the further you get from the devil. Wouldn't you think that? But the truth of the matter is, the tighter you get with God, the more you're going to have opposition with the enemy. And sometimes the Lord does things that you just can't understand. And so in the case of Job, he allows the devil to do what he does, but the devil couldn't possibly have done it if the Lord didn't allow it. So there's some interesting things going on here. I would just say to you, just accept it yourself. Just accept it yourself. 
That's the way you need to live your life. It always starts with some sort of rebellion. And it's rebellion because you already had spiritual life, but something happened. So, okay, um, now we need to go to the second step, and that's confrontation. Confrontation. I read verse 10, but let's go ahead and read again down to verse 13. David's heart smote him after they had numbered the people, and David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly, and that I have done. And now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land, or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee, or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. Now, David's confession in verse number 10 has to come chronologically after the confrontation in verses 11, 12, and 13. Because it says in verse 11, for when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came. For, because of the fact that he receives this word, then the response ultimately is the response that he has in verse number 10. But there is this confrontation. David is ultimately confronted with God's word. And God's word is delivered by a prophet. And that's your notes. God delivers his word through a prophet. Have you ever noticed that? In other words, what would you expect if you're not spending time regularly with God in his word so he can speak to you? If you're not spending time regularly before the Lord in prayer so that you and the Lord have intimate, personal conversation regularly, you're kind of not listening anymore. And if you're kind of not listening anymore, then the Lord will send a messenger. And the messenger will come, and he will bring the word of the Lord to you. Gad is the seer. A seer is another word for a prophet in the Old Testament. And so what happens is, in our lives, we get cold. We get a little rebellious. We let it fade. And we stop reading the Bible. And we stop praying. But we still come to church. And God sometimes wants to speak to you, and he wants to speak to you through a word that is preached to you, Because when you're at home on your own, you're not listening anymore. And what I find over and over again in these modern days that we live in is that people just don't seem to understand that. They don't seem to honor and respect and receive the Word of God as it's given to them through somebody else like, well, you know, I'm older, so allow me to say, like they used to in the good old days. I mean, a long time ago, even in this country, there used to be just kind of a standard respect That when God's man stands up and preaches his word, people would receive it as it is, as God's word. But more and more today, people are like, yeah, whatever. And they just kind of cast it aside. There is a confrontation, and it is not about the man. It is about the word. It is about God delivering his word. I just wanted to point out that that is how he delivers his word. God has a man who will stand against even the king when the king is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Which, by the way, will be the basic subject matter that we will be entering into as we start our next teaching series in a couple of weeks. So the next teaching series that we'll be entering into will be a study of the life of Elijah. And Elijah is one of the greatest prophets in all of the Old Testament, and he lives during the time when there are all these wicked kings ruling Israel and Judah. And so we'll have a lot of things to see with the man of God in juxtaposition against wicked political rulers. We'll see that starting in a couple of weeks. But back to our story here. What we have is God playing a game of let's make a deal with David. And so God comes to David and he's like, look, David, here's the deal. I'm going to judge you. That's a given. There's no way out. But I'm going to give you a choice. You can pick the judgment behind door number one. You can pick the judgment behind door number two, or you can pick the judgment behind door number three. It matters not to me. You can have a pick. But know this, behind each and every door, there's judgment. There's judgment. So, you know, door number one, seven years of famine. (sighs) Okay, so in the Bible, there was a story of seven years of famine. Remember Joseph in Egypt? And they barely made it through. But they made it through, why? Because there was seven years of plenty first. Here we just got the seven years of famine. I mean, that, 
I mean, like, there'll be nobody living on the world. I mean, that'd be it. Or, it says, three months fleeing from your pursuers, kind of maybe giving David flashbacks to the days of Saul and the javelin throwing and, and all of that, hiding in caves and acting like a madman and becoming friends with the Philistines and all the miserable things before he ultimately took the throne as king. And, or three days pestilence, kind of like the plagues in Egypt where any one of the pestilences, the locusts or with the flies or the frogs, well, they lasted for a day, three days of that. You might think, wow, three days, I can handle anything for three days. Well, we'll see in a second. I mean, these are, these are bad choices. <laughs> I mean, he, he only has bad choices. And God says, well, you know, I'm fair. You can, you can pick. And, and all I want to point out to you in this point is this. When you have found your life in rebellion and when you find yourself confronted with the word of God, basically, you've got bad choices in front of you unless you get to the next point, and we'll go through them, surrender, repentance, we'll get to those. But the point is, all you have in front of you, if you are going to continue to live your life of rebellion, all you have in front of you is judgment. That's all there is. And you can pick your favorite way to do it. But can I give you a piece of advice? Don't make deals with God. I mean, just, just don't. You're not going to win. It's never going to work out to your favor. Trust me on that one. I, I have tried. It, it's not worth it. So David comes to his senses, and he confesses, as we see in verse number 10, and he ultimately surrenders, as we'll see continuing on. We'll start in verse 14. And David said unto Gad, I'm in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are great, and let, it, and let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It's enough. Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing place of Arauna, the Jebusite. And so what we see here is that David throws himself on the mercy of the court. He understands that God is merciful and he's better off just letting God decide. So he probably, you know, had just listened to Carrie Underwood. You know, Jesus, take the wheel. Take it from my hands. I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go. Give me one more chance. Save me from this road I'm on. Jesus, take the wheel. You say, that's dumb. Jesus wasn't around in David's day. Wait, why didn't you say Carrie Underwood wasn't around? Okay, so we're going to get some parallel information from 1 Chronicles 21, verse 12, where it says, here's the choices in 1 Chronicles 21, 12. Either three years famine or three months to be destroyed, destroyed before thy foes, while that the sword of thine enemies overtake thee, or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. Again, we have another apparent contradiction. In this case, it says three years famine instead of seven years famine. You absolutely can solve the difference between the three years and the seven years. And if you want to do some homework, I advise you look at Second Samuel chapter 21. But let's get back to our task. You say that was dumb. Jesus wasn't around at that time. Well, there's some hints that maybe indeed he was around. Because we have in 1 Chronicles 21.12 this thing called the sword associated with the angel of the Lord. Right? It says the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying. So the pestilence is going to destroy the angel of the Lord and the sword of the Lord well, we know that the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6 is the Word of God. And we know in John chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the Word of God. And if we went to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 14, what we find is that the angel of the Lord, the angel of God in, John, in Galatians 4, literally Christ Jesus himself. And so what you have here is King David 
facing a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ before he was ever born of the virgin and came to earth to dwell for 30-some years. We have Jesus Christ appearing because anytime God appears to man anywhere ever, it's always Jesus Christ. He is the visible form of the invisible God, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. That's what we see. So, in a sense, he said, Jesus, take the wheel. Okay, so what I want you to notice is, and this is in your notes, when David was faced with only bad choices, he decided to not choose. I mean, David is a sincere believer. He was off track, but he was sincere all his life. He had a good heart. And when he's faced with only bad choices, what did he choose? He chose to not choose. He chose rather just to leave it up to God and to accept whatever God gave him. Now I'm going to give you a little commentary, and this is just my commentary. Put this in the margin. Don't write it down. I don't really care. This is just my observation. We are living in a time in history where, as I said before, we are in front of some pretty important political decisions. And in my humble opinion, they are only bad choices. If you don't happen to have that opinion and you think there are good choices, maybe you should spend more time with the Lord because there are only bad choices. And, and I believe that God will allow, of course, you have the right and the privilege. You would say even the duty. to vote. You can choose door number one, door number two, and maybe some random door number three that might pop up. And you know what I think God's trying to tell us? I think God's trying to remind us, America, no matter which way you turn, judgment's coming. And you can pick your favorite form of it. Oh, by the way, you are absolutely free. Don't leave here saying what I didn't say. You're absolutely free to pick your favorite door. But behind the doors, there's judgment. I mean, it's coming. You better get ready. Individually speaking in our lives, what's it all about? Well, surrender is the first step to reestablishing a healthy relationship with the Lord. The next step is then repentance, of course. And this is just review at this point, but this is what we see in our text. So we'll continue reading. We left off in verse 16. Let's start up in 17. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. Again, he's, he's accepting his own responsibility. And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. So this is a picture of David's repentance. First he surrenders, and that is always the first thing. It's a decision that you make. Then the next thing, letter A, is to confess. In verse 17, he just confesses. He agrees with God. And he just says, look, please, Lord, take the punishment out on me and me alone. Take it out on my family. Don't, why should all Jerusalem be punished? Why should everybody be punished? If this is on me, let it be on me. And that is the right attitude, the attitude of personal ownership. You can't solve anything until you own it. And so David owns it. So the first step of repentance is always confession. And the next step, letter B, is to turn. So he gets the word from Gad, and Gad says, okay, okay, you've confessed your sin. Now I want you to do something. I want you to go and build an altar on this piece of land. And it says that according to the word of the Lord through Gad, David said, I'll do it. So not only do you confess your ownership of the personal responsibility, you then begin to start doing the right things. Building an altar. I wish we had time to study this. We could take a whole hour and just study what altars represent. But you can easily make a very clear spiritual application, a very personal application of the Old Testament practice of building 
an altar. And there's a prescription of how they were to build altars. They were to go out into the, into the countryside and they were to gather up stones. And these stones were to be uncut, unworked by human hands. No human tool would be put to the stone to cut it in pieces and to make it flat or to do anything special. They would take these natural stones and they would bring them back and they would begin to put them together and they would build up this place that would ultimately be a place of sacrifice, a place of worship. You know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of doing the work of the Lord. Because the stones represent the peoples of this world as we go out and we gather them naturally as they are. And we bring them back and we build them together and we build this place that is a place of sacrifice. It's building the church of God, a place of worship. It's exactly what we see in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So once again, the car comes back around the track, and we remind ourselves of this principle that talk is cheap. And true repentance is more than just saying the right things. It's more than just agreeing that God is right. It's, absolute, it's absolutely changing your behavior and doing something about it that is radically different than whatever it was you were doing before in rebellion. So you can say you repent, but how can you or anybody know if it's real? Well, whatever it is, if talk is, alone is cheap, doing it is not going to be cheap. <laughs> it's going to cost you something. It's going to be kind of expensive. So point number five is the proof. And we'll see the proof in verses 20 to 24. So he's going to go build this altar. And so in verse 20, And Araunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Araunah went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Araunah said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said to buy the threshing floor of thee to build an altar unto the Lord that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Araunah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Araunah as a king give unto the king. And Araunah said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Araunah, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. So what we see is that David's step of repentance and turning and beginning to do the right thing included this fact that he understood that whatever he offered to the Lord had to cost him something. It couldn't possibly be free. And so the principle I want you to see is, is that the process of revival includes spending money. That's what we see. Literally, it begins with spending money. He had to buy the property and then gather the stones and then build the altar. So in the context of giving, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, many of you know, is 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And so in the context of churches giving money, in verse 8, it says, I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others, and to notice, prove the sincerity of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. And so there's something about giving this financial offering that this church in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians was so generous and willing to offer their own lives, but most certainly from the poverty of their, of their income. These were not wealthy people, but they insisted on giving it as a proof as the Holy Scriptures, inspired by God, heaven and earth will pass away, his word will never pass away, proof of the sincerity of their love. That's a hard saying. There's just something about 
the process of revival, including giving the money. Verse number 11, same chapter. Now therefore perform the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to will, so there may be a performance also out of that which you have. So it's not enough just to say, yeah, I agree, man. I'm good with that. I, I think that's right. I think that that's what God's people ought to do. But yet somehow you excuse yourself from actually doing it. So God actually put in his word two verses later where he said, oh, by the way, don't just agree. There has to actually be <laughs> the performance of the doing of it. And he says that's, that's out of what you have. Oh, by the way, not, you, I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. I'm asking you to give what you do have, the Lord says. And the sincere Christian person, when nobody else is listening, would say, well, yeah, I mean, that's the whole problem. <laughs> I mean, the whole problem is I have what I have. I like what I have. And the Lord says, well, that's okay. I just want to prove the sincerity of your love. I mean, that's all. And so the process of revival includes spending money. It just does. Listen, in your notes, getting right with God will cost you something. It's going to cost you something. My friend, Sam Miles, says that God is worth getting right with. Amen? It's worth it. And so if we go back to Laodicea, we read in chapter 3 of Revelation in verse 17, now verse 18, Jesus speaking to the church after he describes their condition, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. So Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the church of Laodicea, and many of those people responded, and somehow in the course of their life built themselves up some great wealth, and were pretty proud of it, so much so that they said, we don't need anything. And Jesus said, you don't even understand your spiritual condition, but let me give you some counsel. Jesus Christ is giving the counsel to the people in this condition. He says, I'm going to give you some counsel. I need for you to buy of me certain things. There's just something about money. I mean, there's just something that we have to think about that, oh my goodness. I mean, salvation is free, but discipleship, spiritual growth, getting right with God is going to cost you something, friends. That's just how it works. This guy, Arauna, he was willing to give away all of his resources for living. He had a threshing floor. A threshing floor is the place where you separate the wheat from the chaff. The threshing floor is a place of judgment. You're judging the chaff. Hey, chaff, you're not a wheat. Get out of here, chaff. It's, it's kind of like the sheep and the goats judgment, right? You, you heard about that one? So, you know, it's the sheep and the goats, and you don't want the goats in with the sheep. You've got to get rid of the goats. And it just amazes me how in our modern culture, I mean, if you like sports, you know, I like sports. Everybody wants to be called the goat, right? The greatest of all time. You know, is it Michael? Is it LeBron? Is, I mean, I want to be the goat. Really? It's like saying, I want to be the chaff. <laughs> no, it's a place of threshing. It's a place of judgment. It's a place of separation. And around now, that's his way of living. He's, he's a wheat farmer. Take the oxen. Take all my tools. Take it all. Which means, by the way, it doesn't say it. It means, I got no way of making a living. He was willing to give it all. That's the right attitude, right? David now has the right attitude, and he's like, thank you. Thank you. Not this time. I, you don't understand. I have to pay for this. You have to let me pay for this. And by the way, there's something about people willing to offer things, and sometimes people just have to pay for things. You have to let them pay for things so that they can grow with the Lord. These are just things, these are lessons of life. If you take the comparative passage in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 22, what you're going to find is that you're, you're giving to the Lord. It's going to hurt a little. It's going to cost you something. There has to be some sacrifice. In 1 Chronicles 21, it says that David paid full price. In other words, 
Your, your path to spiritual growth and spiritual walk with the Lord has no discount cards. There are no half-off bargain coupons that are going to come to you in the mail. I mean, the full price is what you're going to have to pay, just like I'm going to have to pay, just like everybody has to pay, because the Lord is no, he's no respecter of persons. Everybody's the same before the Lord, and he wants us all to grow. Listen, man, I don't know what you're doing. I mean, do, ask yourself this question. In this church ministry, if you're a faithful attender, do you pay your fair share? I mean, do you? I know, I know, it's awkward. Do you pay your fair share for what God does for you through the ministries of First Baptist Church? I mean, I know that it's possible, entirely possible. I mean, you, you can come here and you can be a freeloader on the backs of the other faithful givers of First Baptist Church until Jesus comes. You, you have the freedom to do that. Nobody has ever checked anybody at the door, ever, and never will as long as I'm around. That's not happening. But know this, the old commercial from many, many years ago, I think it was a muffler commercial or something, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. Remember that commercial? The older folks? Okay, so before the Lord, it kind of works that way. You can kind of get involved now or not. And if your choice is no thanks, I'm busy. I got my stuff. I'm counting my stuff, remember? (laughs) Well, okay. But there is coming a day of reckoning, which is, by the way, a day of counting. Oh, yeah, accounting, where the Lord is going to reckon how you've lived your life and dole out rewards in a thousand-year-long king. Listen, there's no getting out of this thing, friends. So in a little bit, I'm going to finish preaching, and you'll be glad. And the guys will come up here to sing, and you'll be glad. And the little gold plates are going to pass in front of you. We do that for you. We do that. I, I, I know you can chuck. It's, the truth is, it's an opportunity for you to be obedient to the Lord. I'm not, I'm not wrangling the scriptures to get your money. God will take care of what God orders. I'm not worried about it. I am a shepherd. I am concerned about you. Many of you are not in the category to whom I am speaking at this moment. But if you are, you know who you are. By the way, I don't. I don't look at the records, by the way, just so you know. I'm just preaching the word. There is a messenger in the room. You hear it how you hear it. That's between you and the Lord. All right, we need to wrap this up. The last point is glory as it should be. Verse 25, David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. God is pleased. Obedience always pleases the Lord. What I want you to notice is this. God is so much pleased, and this is in your notes, that God chose to put his temple on the spot where David was revived. This is the location that ultimately Solomon builds the glorious temple on this very patch of land. Second Chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem in Mount Moriah. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Mount Moriah ought to ring a bell for you is the place where Abraham brought Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. A place of sacrifice, a place of judgment, a place of mercy, a place of obedience, a place where Abraham, up until that very last moment, was paying full price. Full price. Mount Moriah happens to be the threshing floor. Happens to be where he builds the temple. Where, it says, at Mount Moriah, where, also I might add, the Lord appeared unto David his father in the place that David had prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. So the temple is where all the offerings and the sacrifices are carried out. It's the altar. The temple is where God comes down and meets man. The temple is where God is glorified. And so we see in 2 Chronicles 7, after the building of the temple, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the house in that place. 
the place where God gets the glory. God will be glorified in your life. This is in your notes at the place of your altar. God will be glorified in your life, just like in David's, in this picture of revival, in the very place where you build your altar. And everybody has to have one. The place of your altar is the place of your surrender. It's the place of your obedience. It's the place of your sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15 says, to obey is better than sacrifice. That's what God wants from our lives. This is one Old Testament picture of true revival. We could paint a lot of pictures from the Old Testament, beautiful stories, but this is one. My question for you today is, what's God trying to tell you? I have no idea where you're at. Many of you are doing very well, and praise the Lord for you. And maybe tomorrow or the next day, you'll be in a challenge, and this will be an encouragement to you. But some of you are here, and you know very well that you have ownership of eternal life, but you're not feeling it. And you're not feeling it because it's been a long time since you've spent with the Lord and his word every day. And it's been a long time since you've really bowed your head and just talked to him about stuff. But you're here. And for some reason, the Lord took his word through the speaking of some whoever happened to say it and has touched your heart. And it's time for you to make a decision. It's time for you to fill in the blanks in your life. How are you going to respond today? I mean, are you going to leave here and go out of here and, and just continue to count your stuff? Or are you going to count the cost? And you're going to surrender, and you're going to repent, and you're going to obey, and you're going to prove it, and it's going to cost you something. We call this space down in the front of the church the altar. It's not really an altar. But back in the old days... Baptist Church has always called this front part of the steps the altar for the spiritual application that people would come down and they would use it as their altar, their place of sacrifice, their place of surrender. And in a minute, again, I'm going to pray and the band is coming up and we're going to sing and the plates will be passed. And It's your time. It's your opportunity. And maybe you want to come down here just as a symbolic way of getting out of your seats and moving and making a statement and a stand and just praying before the Lord and doing whatever it is he would have you to do. We can talk about revival all summer long, but if something doesn't change in your life, it's just talk. Let's pray together.